invite you to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, as we continue our series through the book of Genesis, uh, and in particular focusing on what is the darkest chapter in the Bible. As we have considered over the past few weeks, tragedy has struck God's good creation. The perfect peace and fellowship that man enjoyed with God is now marked by chaos as the pinnacle of God's creation. Man and woman made in his image have rebelled against him. They have desired the place of Godhood themselves, breaking the covenant of works, rebelling and plunging the entire human race into sin and death. But now, as we saw last week and we see again, God has entered the garden. And yes, he pronounces judgment upon the rebels. He pronounces a curse upon fallen man and upon Satan. And yet, in mercy, God includes a word of hope for us. For here, in the darkness of Genesis 3, which records the fall of man, there is a ray of hope. And from the very mouth of God comes the first declaration of good news and redemption in this newly fallen world. And so it is to those verses that we turn our attention this morning. And if you have found your place in Genesis chapter 3, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 14, the word of the Lord says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. We live in a world that is fallen and marked by darkness and brokenness. We live in a world in which we experience pain and sorrow and death. In addition to these that are a part of this fallen world, we live in a world that is marked by conflict. We experience personal conflict. We spoke about that last week as we considered the alienation of Adam and Eve first from God, but then one from another. We experience this kind of personal conflict in our own lives, don't we, as our relationships in this fallen world are sometimes broken by sin. But scripture is clear that in addition to this brokenness on the personal level as we experience conflict, there is conflict on a global scale. There is conflict in a spiritual capacity that is happening in the world around us. And we read about this, Pastor Dudley read in the scripture reading from Revelation chapter 12 in this dramatic imagery as the ancient serpent, the great dragon who is the devil, wages war against the woman and her offspring. And we have this dramatic picture of angels waging war in heaven and then Satan himself being cast down to the earth and continuing to wage war, first seeking to devour the offspring of the woman as he is born, but unable to do so, he then goes to wage war against the rest of our offspring, and it's noted there that those are the ones who have borne testimony to Jesus. And so this 
spiritual conflict on this global scale is what is behind all of the conflict that we see in our lives and in our culture. Whether we're discussing conflict about abortion, gender and sexuality, or evolution and the origins of the universe, or whether we're considering the, the very persecution of the church and the oppression of the church around the globe, it is because of the conflict, the enmity that is instituted here in the garden. All of the hostility and all the conflict that we experience is the direct result of the fall and God's judgment being pronounced upon the serpent. And so the judgment passed in this portion of the Genesis narrative is not limited to Adam, to Eve, or to the serpent. It is passed on generation after generation, and the consequences of sin come upon Adam and all his offspring because he is our covenant head. And so Adam, all are fallen. In Adam, all experience this alienation, hostility, and conflict. In Adam, we are totally depraved. In Adam, we are enslaved to sin and to Satan. And we experience the misery of pain and death in this fallen world. In addition to our fallen condition in Adam, Satan is now actively roaming the world, seeking whom he may devour. And the great tempter, the ancient serpent, is still at work in the world, taking every opportunity to make war against the Lord and those who would follow him. This is the bleak picture that we see in the Garden of Eden. Rebellion, shame, nakedness, blame shifting, and now we see conflict. But again, God enters the garden. And last week we saw God entering the garden both in judgment and in mercy to meet his people where they are in their sin and shame. And now God enters the garden speaking a pronouncement of judgment upon the serpent. But in this gravest of darkness, there is a ray of hope as God in his sovereign declaration proclaims judgment upon the serpent. Because in his declaration against the serpent, God, for the very first time in human history pronounces the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's this first gospel promise is given by God in the form of a curse upon the serpent. And as Adam and Eve listen on to this conversation between God and Satan, they are reminded of their enmity between God and man. They're reminded of their falling away and their alienation from God. But as they hear this pronouncement of condemnation, they hear in it, a kind declaration of hope for themselves. And it's that kind declaration of hope for themselves that we want to consider this morning. As we consider this first gospel promise and this curse upon the serpent, there are two things for us to consider about it this morning. The first of which is this, the curse of humiliation upon the serpent. The curse of humiliation upon the serpent. Look back at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And so here in verse 14, God speaks to the serpent and indirectly, as we saw a couple weeks ago, God isn't speaking indirectly to Satan who has possessed the serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. And so God, as he enters the garden to come and right the wrong that has been uh, an affront to his holiness, he speaks to them in the order of the fall as it took place. You see, the serpent spoke to Eve 
And as Eve dialogues with the serpent, she partakes of the fruit. And then she gives to her husband and he partakes. And so the curses are given in the order of the transgressions as they occurred in the fall. First, God pronounces a word of judgment against the serpent. And then in verse 16, we'll see next week to woman and then to man. But as we consider this pronouncement of judgment upon the serpent, I want us to note that there is no dialogue with the serpent. There's no interaction. There is only condemnation. As God comes to the garden, we saw last week that He comes not only in judgment, but in mercy for His image bearers. Where are you, Adam? He calls for them and He is seeking a confession from them. But here, as we consider God's words to the serpent, he says simply, because you have done this, you are cursed. You have tempted those who bear my image to rebel. You have lied against me, bearing false witness against my character, my goodness, and my truthfulness. You have turned my order for creation upside down. You have instigated rebellion. Because you have done this, you are cursed. There are no questions asked. There is no confession sought. There is is no repentance offered. There is immediate condemnation upon the serpent. And there is this prophetic pronouncement of Satan's sentence of humiliation and frustration and of his ultimate defeat. Because that's the nature of the curse that God pronounces upon Satan. He says, you, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock. You're cursed more than any wild animal. And it says at the end of verse 14, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. This is the curse that is pronounced upon the serpent. Now, it may be that the serpent before the fall had legs or even walked upright. Uh, we don't know. There's much debate about this among commentators. But I, I think more than what the text is emphasizing about the nature of the serpent's posture, whether he walks upright and now slithers on his belly, there is a point being made to emphasize his humiliation. One author says this, that the crawling is henceforth symbolic, just as in in Genesis 9:13 there is a new significance there is a new significance not a new existence that will be decreed for the rainbow not that God causes something that may or may not have happened before but God is now decreeing that it has new significance and as the serpent crawls on his belly eating dust all the days of his life this will signify through all time and into eternity that the serpent is cursed among all animals in other words, there is a new lesson to be seen and a new significance to be found in the serpent's slithering posture. And it's one of great humiliation. And he will eat dust all the days of his life. Now this eating dust, we can see if we understand this in light of later revelation, that there is, uh, that this, this eating dust is significant regarding a humiliation and a defeat. Uh, one author in the psalm, Psalm 72, says this, May he rule from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the end of the earth. May desert tribes kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. Likewise, in Micah 7.17, they will lick the dust like a snake. They will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. They will tremble in the presence of the Lord our God and they will stand in awe of you. 
And so God is letting Satan know from the outset through this curse upon the serpent, this new uh, posture that he has of humiliation and of defeat and of disgrace. God is letting Satan know that his existence will be one of humiliation and of frustration. There will be continuous aspiration of Satan, but never any attainment. He has promised nothing but defeat and abasement. And surely as Adam and Eve listen on to this a curse upon the serpent, a, a giant lump forms in their throat, wondering what God is going to say to them next. But as God pronounces this judgment, surely they recognize that God had the right to pronounce the same kind of judgment upon them. Surely they are seeing and thinking and understanding that their rebellion should invoke this very kind of wrath. And yet God is merciful to his people. While he does pronounce a fitting curse upon the woman and upon the man, God shows them undeserved mercy for he grants them space for repentance and confession. And so here we see in this curse of humiliation that Satan's temptation of Eve was not ultimately uh, about Adam and Eve in and of themselves. No, Satan desired to wage war against God himself. As he fell from heaven and is now upon the earth, he desires to usurp the place of God. He caused man to question God's word and turned God's order and design upside down as an act of warfare against God himself. And although God, excuse me, although Satan seems victorious in this moment, and Satan may seem victorious at other moments, God has pronounced a curse upon him that he will be subject to humiliation and defeat and that his head will be crushed. And in this moment, passing a curse of judgment upon the serpent, God defends his glory, preserves his creation, and upholds his own sovereignty for nothing happens without his sovereign decree. And so as we consider this curse, brothers and sisters, may we praise the Lord our God who has maintained his sovereignty even in the midst of rebellion and sin. God maintains his sovereignty speaking prophetically regarding the end of Satan. Though it may seem that Satan has won the battle, he will not win the war. He will be finally judged and cursed. He will not gain a stronghold in God's creation. And yet we also see in this, brothers and sisters, that the condemnation of the serpent ought to have been the condemnation that you and I received. God did not owe to mankind to come into the garden offering mercy and grace. But the mercy and grace that we see to God is a, a free gift to us, undeserving though we are, deserving only of the condemnation that the serpent receives. God gives mercy and grace unto us. And as we consider God's mercy and grace in light of the condemnation that is pronounced upon the devil, I ask that we consider and allow this grace to strengthen us in our own temptation. As Satan tempts us, we pray unto the Lord that when it seems that Satan is waging war against our own soul, that we know that God would remind us that He has been overcome and that God has pronounced His defeat. Jesus, in some of His final words in the Gospel of John, says this in John 16 about the Holy Spirit that, that will come and indwell Christ's people. When He comes, 
He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Dear Christian, as you are tempted to sin and to rebel against God who made you, whose image you bear, as you are tempted and the temptation seems so strong and you feel that you're going to give in, be reminded, dear Christian, that Satan is accursed and he has no power over you. I'm reminded this morning uh, that we've been studying the book of Job on Wednesday nights. And in Job chapter 1, it is Satan who comes before the Lord and the Lord says to Satan, Satan, have you considered my servant? Job. There is nothing that Satan can do outside of the sovereign decree of God. He is under complete humiliation and complete disgrace. Dear Christian, oh, look to God. Look to His power. Look to His grace. Look to His Spirit in those moments of temptation to be reminded of the humiliation and the curse of Satan. This is God's curse of humiliation upon the serpent and upon Satan. And as God pronounces this righteous condemnation over the great tempter, Adam and Eve overhear a wonderful promise. Already considering God's mercy, Adam and Eve hear a declaration of sovereign grace in the second part of God's curse upon the serpent. And so I want us to consider a second thing this morning. First, we've seen the curse of humiliation. But second, I want us to see the curse of hostility. The curse of hostility. Look with me again at verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In addition to cursing the serpent to humiliation, frustration, and defeat, uh, crawling on his belly all the days of his life, God also curses the relationship between the tempter and humanity. And yet for mankind, this is no curse, but it is a word of hope. It is good news. It is the first gospel promise. Because what God is doing here in verse 15 is He's not just merely establishing hostility between the serpent and mankind. He is actually re-establishing hostility between the serpent and mankind. You see, this hostility refers to animosity. It refers to enmity. It refers to conflict and separation. And so at first glance, it might be surprising that God would introduce conflict and hostility into His creation. After all, He's coming to right the wrongs of the fall, and we might expect all of the other things that God says, but we might not expect hostility. But the problem is not enmity or hostility itself. Adam and Eve were supposed to be hostile towards Satan and towards sin. They were supposed to be against him. They were supposed to be in conflict against him. In fact, we mentioned a few weeks ago that Adam's first downfall was even tolerating the presence of the deceitful serpent in the garden to begin with. They should have been hostile to him when he called God's word into question. But instead of hostility, they aligned themselves, forming alliance with Satan against the God of heaven. And so God institutes and puts in place this hostility between man and Satan, between woman and Satan. 
Now, it might not see it as we think about the world around us. It seems as if Satan might be doing well. After all, he's called the God of this world we've read. He's called the prince of demons. He has children everywhere. He's blinding the hearts of unbelievers. He roams to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. And yet, even still, we have promised the promise of God that there is hostility, enmity between man and the serpent, man and Satan. Those who bear the image of God, though it is distorted in sin, still maintain some semblance of morality. They still have consciences. And so God has established this enmity. And though they're called children of the devil, and though they're called children of wrath by nature, there is still a degree to which there is hostility and enmity between Satan and even the people of this world who do not know Christ. And it's because Satan promises all of the wonders of sin and that it will measure up and it will give them all of their desires, but sin always comes short. It never measures up. It never offers what it promises. And so even in light of that, there is this hostility between Satan and the world as Satan continues to promise all the good things and there's still an emptiness that dwells in the hearts of those of unbelief. James Boyce says it this way, what a blessing that was. We may think many times of the love, joy, and happiness that the coming of Jesus Christ brought us. And we thank God rightly for those things. But we should not forget to thank Him for a corresponding hatred of sin, sorrow at sin's ways, and increasing misery when we find ourselves ensnared in sin's tentacles. When we sin, we often find that we like the sin but we want to escape sin's consequences. We would like to destroy ourselves in comfort, like the addict destroying himself in the dreamlike stupor of debilitating drugs and booze. We would like to go to hell happy. But it is one aspect of grace that God does not allow that to happen. God makes sin miserable and sets up an antagonism between ourselves and Satan that modifies the hold of sin and makes it possible for us to hear God's loving voice even in our misery. What James Boyce is saying there is that there is an animosity and antagonism between ourselves and Satan that even the lost and dying world uh, can still hear the gospel. They can still look and know at the creation that God has made and know that there is emptiness in the things of this world that Satan promises uh, fulfillment and yet it comes up empty. God has ordained that the path of sin would not be successful and that it would lead to dissatisfaction. The unbeliever is in rebellion against God and at enmity to God. But the Bible also shows us that the path of sin is unfulfilling and therefore in that way, all of mankind is in hostility, enmity against Satan himself. Because God has sovereignly decreed this hostility. It wasn't because of Adam and Eve. No, they have fallen. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. But it is God who comes. Isn't that what the scripture says in verse 15? I will put 
hostility between you and the woman. It is God who is pronouncing enmity between the woman and the serpent and between her offspring and the serpent's offspring. It is by divine decree, it is by sovereign intervention that God reestablishes hostility between man and sin and between man and Satan. Although they chose to align themselves with the devil himself and though they chose to rebel against God, God sovereignly comes and changes the relationship between man Man and Satan. He puts new enmity between them. He causes them to hate what they have just come to love. He causes them to be hostile toward the new friend that they have just made. And he gives them new affections and new desires, replacing the hostility that they have just come to know. And in doing that, not only is God reconciling them back to himself, but he is putting a new enmity and a hostility between the one who tempted them to begin with. Isn't this what God does for us, dear Christian? Don't, when we come to Christ, we find a new enmity and a new hostility toward the things of the world. Not in perfection, of course not. But the scripture says that God will give us a new heart. He will replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And he will give us new desires. And he will write his law upon our heart, giving us new desires and affections, causing us to hate what we loved and making us hostile to that which we were friends with. We find a new enmity in our hearts because God has placed it there. We cannot put our own enmity there. God alone does it. Adam and Eve could not do it for themselves, being dead in their trespasses and sins. But God accomplishes this new hostility by His sovereign grace. One author said this, What an encouragement that is. As true believers, when we find in our hearts an enmity against sin that we know we could not have put there by ourselves. And so, dear Christian, know, as Paul says in Philippians 2, that he is working in you both the will and the work. He is causing within you both the will and the effort according to his good purpose to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. When we are tempted towards sin, let this be for us a new way to pray for grace. May we pray, God, put within my heart a hatred of this sin and of Satan who tempts me to rebel against your good and perfect law. God, grant me grace. Put hostility in my heart toward the temptation that is pulling me away from you and away from your good law. This is the hostility that God puts between man and Satan. But this is clearly not just a hostility between the serpent and Eve. This is a perpetual hostility. This will be a hostility through the ages between the offspring. Now this word hostility can refer to an immediate descendant. It can refer to a distant offspring. Or it can even uh, refer to a large group of descendants. And there's a little bit of all of that wrapped up here in this promise of Genesis 3.15. But we, we see here in particular that there is obviously a reference to a distant offspring. And there is reference to a large group of offspring, a large group of descendants. Because God is going to prolong this enmity. He's going to raise up children from the woman who will have the same enmity and hostility against Satan. There's going to be raised up seed of the serpent that are going to cause ongoing conflict between these two seed. 
But these seed are not natural born. These aren't little snakes slithering around, nor are these necessarily all children that are born to the woman. These are spiritual offspring. First in the fallen angels that have fought followed Satan in his rebellion, but this also refers to fallen humanity. And I think that's the primary meaning here in Genesis 3. Jesus says of the Pharisees in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He also says in a parable in Matthew chapter 13, as he explains to his disciples who approached him and asked, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And Jesus replies in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. These are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And so fallen humanity are of their father, the devil. They are with him, united with him. There's still hostility there, enmity there, bitterness as they rebel even against one another in that way. But there is also this seed of the woman. And this seed of the woman is the offspring of the woman that is a godly line. Those who are in obedience to God by their redemption. And so really what we have here is two lines of the human race. There truly are only two kinds of people in the world. There are the seed of the serpent and there's the seed of the woman. These two humanities are defined either by their obedience to Satan on the one hand or obedience to Christ on the other. There is the elect on the one hand and the reprobate on the other. There are the saved on the one hand, the lost on the other. There's the wicked and the righteous. There's the church and the world. There's the children of God and the children of the devil. The one that results from the successful temptation of man by Satan and the other that results by God's sovereign grace. And these are in perpetual opposition as Satan wages war against God and against his people. And this verse is so vitally important to our understanding of the rest of Genesis and even the rest of the entire Bible. Because the rest of Genesis and even the rest of the Bible is going to record for us this ongoing conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This plays out immediately in Genesis 4 as Cain slays his brother Abel in rebellion against God, in hatred of him. And then in Genesis chapter 4 at the end we read of Lamech who uh, boasts of himself but of Seth that is born to Eve and there's a godly line then established. We have in Genesis 6 the world in rebellion against God doing whatever their imagination fathoms and we have Noah who is righteous before the Lord. There will be a conflict between Ishmael and Isaac, Esau against Jacob, Egypt against Israel, the Canaanites against the Israelites, the Assyrians against the Jews, Saul against David. There is this ongoing conflict of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And it continues even now today. We read in the Acts of the Apostles as Satan oppresses the church and persecutes them and puts them to death. And in the early church as they are slaughtered in the Roman Colosseums by the mouths of of animals and then through the Reformation and the days of the early Baptists and even now on today, the world is opposed to the church. 
The seed of the serpent opposed to the seed of the woman because of this spiritual warfare against God and His people. Dear Christian, we need to be very much aware that there is warfare happening in our lives regarding our own souls. We must not be ignorant concerning the desires of the evil one. But praise be to God that He has put this enmity in our hearts. In mercy, He has put hostility between these two seeds. And dear Christian, let this be a reminder that this is a God-ordained separation of two different kinds of people. Lest we be tempted to make efforts to appease the world. Lest we be tempted to assimilate into the world and be like the world. The call to us from this passage is to not be like the world, but to be in the world and distinct from the world in the world but not of it the only way for us to be truly embraced by the world is to abandon Jesus Christ altogether because God has placed an unwillingness in their hearts to accept us the hostility protects us dear Christian from a temptation to compromise our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ let us be reminded that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Let us be reminded that James says that, uh, that to be at friendship with the world is to be hostile toward God. And to become a friend of the world is to become the enemy of God. No, let us resist the devil, he says, so that he may flee from us, drawing near to God, that he may draw near to us. Jesus himself even warned us of this hostility and enmity between the two seed. In John chapter 16, excuse me, John chapter 15, he says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all of these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Dear Christian, Jesus warns us that there will be eternal hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us. And we must be prepared for that, not to give in and compromise our convictions regarding the Word of God and regarding the exclusivity of Christ Jesus for eternal salvation, but to stand firm in spite of that hostility to the glory of God. These words of Jesus then bring us to the climactic conflict between Satan and the offspring of the woman. Because in the second half of verse 15, we read, He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God is now moving from a large group of descendants, separating the offspring of these two heads to one individual. One author calls this the battle of the champions. 
God speaks of a single figure that will rise against Satan and crush his head. And this is understood to be a messianic prophecy of, of the one, the Messiah, who will rise to save man from their sins. In the wake of the fall of man, God is promising redemption through a Savior. And in the aftermath of the broken covenant of works, God is promising a covenant of grace through this seed of the woman. And Satan will strike blows at the heel of this Messiah. And the Messiah will be wounded. But at the same time, he will strike a crushing blow at Satan's head. Well, dear Christian, we understand on this side of the cross of Calvary and the life of Jesus that this speaks none other of the person and work of Jesus Christ Himself. Who from his very birth, Satan struck at his heels. Herod had all the boys in Bethlehem slaughtered. And immediately after his baptism into messianic ministry, he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Satan strikes at his heels with every temptation that he can muster. But Jesus proves righteous, crushing the head of Satan. And it says there in Matthew 4 that he leaves for a time. In Jesus' ministry, He comes to undo the work of Satan. He heals those who are in affliction. He raises the dead and He casts out demons. He binds the strong man, plundering His house, redeeming a people for Himself. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Satan enters into the heart of Judas Iscariot and he betrays Jesus into the hands of sinful men. And as Jesus goes out into the garden of Gethsemane, prepping himself for the suffering that he is about to endure, he is tempted by Satan not to partake of the cup of God's wrath that is ordained for him to drink. And yet Jesus says, Father, if there is any other way for this cup, let it pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He tramples underfoot the serpent in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then certainly at the cross of Calvary, as Jesus is betrayed, He is mocked and spit upon and abused. He is whipped and beaten and a crown of thorn placed upon His head. And as He's hung upon the cross of Calvary, suspended between heaven and earth, the children of the devil come by mocking Him, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. And the chief priests come and mock Him, saying, He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross, and we will believe in Him. And Jesus endures the mockings and the revilings and sufferings and the shame because Satan, although he is crushing, bruising his heel, Jesus must deliver the killing blow to Satan himself by crushing his head. Even in his death, Jesus crushes the head of Satan because he accomplishes the redemption of the offspring of the woman. The only reason there is offspring of the woman to begin with is because the one bought it for us by His own blood. He crushes the head of the serpent and He defeats Satan by rising from the dead. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says it this way, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through His death He might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that He does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. 
Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could be a, become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of his people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Oh, dear Christian, know from Hebrews, but especially from Genesis 3.15, that he has destroyed the one who holds the power of death. And now Jesus stands victorious is holding the keys of death and hell himself. He has liberated us from the fear of death for those of us who are Abraham's offspring by faith. Christ endured a hill-crushing blow for us that he might deal the skull-crushing blow to the head of the serpent on our behalf. And now all things are under his feet. Jesus rules supreme and all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ in that way, if you still are struggling with the fear of death, if your life is marked by conflict and alienation and hostility, if your life is marked by hatred of God, or maybe you even don't think of yourself as a child of the devil who hates God, if you have not a desire for Christ, if you have not a desire for the things of God, the Bible calls you a child of the devil. You see, there's no in-between. There's no seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. And then those of us in the middle who just think of ourselves as good people and hopefully God will overlook our bad on the last day. There's no middle category. You are either a child of God, seed of the woman, or you're a child of the devil, seed of the serpent. But the good news to you this morning is that Christ stood condemned to die for sinners such as you. He goes to the cross of Calvary and He sheds His blood to crush the head of the serpent, to liberate a people out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of God's dear Son. By Him we have forgiveness of our sins. Won't you cry out to Him? Won't you look unto Jesus? Stop trusting in Adam. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your good works. But look unto Jesus, the skull-crushing seed of the woman who has defeated all the sin and defeated all the conflict and defeated all the hostility that you experience in your life. He has put it under His feet by His death and by His glorious resurrection. And in that, He promises us eternal life. If you would look to Jesus, you would live you would no longer be dead in your trespasses and sins. You would no longer be alienated and hostile in your minds. You would no longer be a child of wrath and a, at enmity with God, a slave of your sin. No. He would make you a seed of the woman. He would make you a child of His. He would give you new life and new desires. He would liberate you from the slavery of sin and from the devil. Oh, dear friend, if you would repent of your sins, if you would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, putting your faith and trust in Him alone, you would have eternal life. You would know salvation. But dear Christian, I close by reminding us, as Paul says in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, God forbid, of course not. But John says it this way in 1 John the one who commits sin or makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. 
for he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Oh, dear Christian, let us not make a practice of sinning. Let us not give ourselves again and again to temptation. For in doing that, we show ourselves not to be born of God, not to be the seed of a woman. Jesus came to liberate us from that tyranny in our lives. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent so that we may be free from sin. The one who commits sin, the one who practices sin is of the devil. But we are born of God. Oh, let us put that sin under our feet by the power of Christ Jesus. Do not go on sinning because you have been freed from it by Christ. But Christian, I would also remind you that thanks be to God that you have been liberated from the kingdom of darkness. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. We're going to give thanks for bread and for cup that are sacramentally representative of the work of Christ on the cross as he gives his body and sheds his blood for us so that we would no longer be children of the serpent but be children of Christ Jesus that would be, be joint heirs with him rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son whom he loves. As we partake of those elements, let, let our minds be fixated upon the skull-crushing work of Jesus as He rescues us from the domain of darkness and puts Satan under His feet. And may we be reminded, dear Christian, that we now have power over sin. We now have power over Satan. Not in our own strength, certainly not. He is a terrible foe. But in Christ Jesus, it is said in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Dear Christian, we have power and victory over Satan and temptation. We have power and victory over the grave and hell because of Christ Jesus. And we have the promise of eternity with Him. In Revelation 20, we read that the devil and his angels are cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. And then in Revelation 21, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And so, dear Christian, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming His death until He comes. And when He comes, He will receive us unto Himself to take us to the other side of the eternal condemnation of Satan that we may live with Him in a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth where it says in Revelation 21, nothing defiled can ever enter there. Dear Christian, we go to a place with Christ Jesus that there will never be another serpent that must be crushed for Jesus has crushed the enemy of His people once for all. And so from the very beginning, God promises victory over Satan. And as we read the rest of the Bible, it's given to us to explain and expound this promise and to give us example after example that God is faithful to His Word, that He will crush Satan under the feet of the seed of the woman. All of the hostility between man and the serpent and the redemption that He secures for us from the grips of sin, He secures for us in Christ Jesus. From God's very first words after the fall, this has been the message of hope to our world. From the very beginning, God holds forth grace to Adam's fallen race. For us helpless sinners, there is grace from the very beginning. Let's go to Him in prayer. Oh God, we thank You for Your compassion upon us. We thank You for Your mercy. Though we are undeserving sinners, we come before You thanking You for Your kindness. Lord God, we thank you for the supper that we are about to receive, the bread and the cup that represents the body and blood of Christ Jesus, that points our eyes and our minds and our affections back to the soul-crushing work of Jesus, excuse me, the skull-crushing work of Jesus 
on the cross of Calvary. Lord, flood our minds with those truths as we partake of these elements. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.